We ask it for your glory's sake. Minister to your people that we might become like you, we pray. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 10, where I read earlier this morning this great section, which is, of course, very familiar to all of us, beginning in verse 25 and all the way through verse 37 of the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel. It's very likely that anywhere in our country you could say the name Good Samaritan and people would be familiar with the terminology. You could probably say it all over the world and find the same thing all over the educated world and find that people know what this term means. Most people know what it is supposed to represent when you say Good Samaritan. It's supposed to refer to someone who sees someone in affliction and has compassion on them. That's basically its most simple meaning, and it's even become kind of an idiom in our culture. It's a a cultural idiom about someone who tries to help suffering people who have needs. As far as we know in in history, the 17th century is where it was used in in a volume, a published volume, as a figurative term. Peter Chamberlain in 1649 published a book titled The Poor Man's Advocate, or It was subtitled, England's Samaritan, and it referred to the same thing. And the term is so familiar that we've turned it into a legal term. If if there's an emergency of a natural sort, a natural disaster, and you come along and you, you help someone in a natural disaster, then we've made laws that protect you in case uh, some of your skills aren't quite up to the task. So if you're coming along and you see someone in a natural disaster, you're protected in all 50 states by some sort of law called a Samaritan's law or a good Samaritan law. That way if you try to help but you don't necessarily have all the skills necessary and something goes wrong, you're not liable because you tried to be a compassionate help in a difficult situation. Of the 15,000 plus hospitals that are registered and unregistered in the United States, a great percentage of them have called themselves Good Samaritan. Same here in West Palm Beach. We have a hospital called Good Samaritan. The vision statement says on their website, your health and happiness are our mission. We commit ourselves to helping you live a healthy, productive life. How do they do that? They come alongside you, your physical needs, and heal. We even have Samaritan's Purse, a worldwide parachurch organization The mission statement says that since 1970, Samaritan's Purse has helped meet needs of people who are victims, victims of war, poverty, natural disasters, disease, and famine, with the purpose of sharing God's love through His Son, Jesus Christ, end quote. That's in their mission statement. Victims. You see someone who's a victim, you go help them. You're called a good Samaritan. All over our culture, even the secular world knows that. And we have to admit, it's a fitting expression because even... Being made in the image of God, though we have the stain of sin and nothing we do is ever really ultimately a full reflection of God's character, it is true that that being a helper in times when someone is afflicted or someone's been victimized, that reflects even the image of God in man even though we're tainted by sin. He's a God of infinite compassion. We reflect His image. And despite being imperfect at it, when we show pity, it is a reflection of this great, wonderful reality that God created His people to be like Him. And so even unbelievers outside of the grace of Christ can show pity. Man at his very best, even without the grace of Christ, runs to help people who are in affliction. That's why you know that man is at his worst when... He, he shuts down that heart of compassion or cultures are at their worst when a despotic leader or criminals or mobs take innocent people and victimize them and harm them and do away with them and cause pain and suffering. Man is at his worst when he does that. It's the opposite of God's nature. You come to a story like this and and we are automatically drawn in because we love a good story of human compassion. It's the only thing really in my lifetime that's ever been able to instantly evoke tears even when I was a child. If I I saw someone suffering unjustly and someone came along and alleviated that, my heart went out to the victim but then 
my heart really began to become stirred when someone would come along and alleviate the suffering by a providence or somebody's, somebody's willingness to sacrifice and help. And so you might come to this story and think, this isn't going to be difficult to preach. This narrative in Luke's gospel has all of those elements of human compassion. How hard could it be? You got a victim, you have some heartless people, you got a compassionate guy in the story, and the compassionate guy is willing to sacrifice for a stranger, and that convicts us and inspires us. So it's an easy story, really, to teach or to preach. However, if you didn't look close enough, you might not also know that this parable that Jesus tells is an answer to a question that was put to him from a lawyer. (laughs) Not a secular lawyer in the law courts, although he might have had expertise in that, but a theological expert in Old Testament law. And you might be thinking right now, oh, great, we're going to talk about deep theology and jurisprudence and all the things I'm not interested in. Give me the Hallmark version. Not so fast. If you understand this parable properly, you have to know that Jesus answered a question. It was a very important question. In fact, it's the most important question of all. The question has to do with how a person can have an eternal, intimate relationship with the holy God of the universe and know for certain that it's genuine. In other words, Jesus is asking the question, how do I have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe and know for certain that I'm okay with him, that I actually have a relationship with him? That's the issue at stake in this account. And by the way, that is always the issue at stake when you're dealing with Jesus in the Gospels. That's always the core issue when dealing with what it means to have eternal life. You have to deal with Jesus. Every other concern fades into the distance compared to the heart of the matter question posed here by this this person. And so it's intriguing to us that Jesus chose to answer the lawyer's challenge with this parable, and we have to understand why. First of all, I want to mention verse 21, because you remember if you've been with us in our study, Jesus said that he celebrates the fact that the Father hides the truth from someone who's wise and intelligent in their own eyes. He does. God hides the gospel, hides the truth sovereignly from proud people, from people that believe something of themselves, the self-righteous. He will leave them in their self-righteousness and harden them, Jesus says, and Jesus celebrates that, and he celebrates that God reveals the truth to people for whom life has crushed their pride and brought them to their knees and helped them see their only need is Christ. And having said that, what you now see Luke doing is introducing us to a wise and intelligent guy. He introduces us to one of the VIP types, the highly educated types. We'll call him the wise man, and we'll say that he opens this this conversation taking his best shot. This is the wise man's best shot. Notice verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. And I love the fact that Luke says, behold here, because I've told you before, he is grabbing us by the lapel and saying, you do not want to miss this encounter. The encounter involves questions of eternal life. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, this is a crucial text for you. It's also a public debate. This guy is challenging Jesus to a public debate about beliefs. That's important for all of us. Moreover, he's a wise and intelligent scholar. So it's a scholar. The the word here means he's an expert in the interpretation and application of Old Testament law. So he told the Jews how to live, he told them how the law applied to their life, he told them how to order their everyday life, and he interpreted it for them, being sort of the doctor of Old Testament theology. And Luke says, check this out, don't miss it, pay close attention to it. I love that, because it's setting up a debate. We all love debates. Unbelievers chomp at the bit for uh, some agnostic or atheist to go at a Christian or go at Christianity's beliefs. And so unbelievers get all excited about a text like this and probably in the crowd would have been excited about this wise man coming up to take Jesus on. 
However, it's also an encounter that gets exciting for Christians because what you have here is a doctor of divinity specializing in Old Testament law versus, well, God. (laughs) He's going up against God. So Christians sort of drool at this as well. It's pretty exciting. This is going to be riveting. I remember years ago the When I was in apologetic class, they said, we want you to listen to the Greg Bonson uh, Stein debates on the existence of God. And of course, Bonson was a brilliant apologist for Christianity. Stein wasn't prepared at all. Took place at UC Irvine in 1985. And one of our friends, Dr. John Frame, who teaches up at RTS in Orlando, he, uh, he was there in 1985, and he said the environment was electric. You had all these unbelievers over there saying, oh yeah, Dr. Stein's gonna destroy the Christians' beliefs, and then all the Christians were sitting there drooling because Greg Bonson was there, and, and sure enough, it, Stein was not prepared, and, and Bonson was able to really do some serious damage, and everybody got very excited. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what you have here. Luke says, check it out. You got a serious debate, a lawyer a certain lawyer, a particular lawyer. He's going to take his best shot, and you know he wouldn't attempt it if he didn't think he could assail Jesus' arguments. Jesus is a rabbi. There's no way this guy's going to attempt to debate him if he didn't already assume that he had the arguments that the rabbi could not answer or deal with. And so, verse 25, he stood up. That's an official, I'm going to speak some instruction here. And he put Jesus to the test. And and again, the text does not indicate that every hostile attitude is going on here. I mean, some of the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus, and so they spoke to him in some meetings with the threat of death on their minds. Perhaps this guy's going to use the information against Jesus that way. But no doubt, later, he doesn't want to incriminate himself, so he's clearly looking to publicly demonstrate that Jesus' ministry is not what everybody assumes. He's going to take it apart a little bit. And so he asks a question, and he asks a question about moral obligation. Verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is the ultimate question, as I said. It's the ultimate question any human being can ask. There's no more important question in the universe. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it when he was writing to the church in the 17th century. He said, it deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. Why? Because we're all sinners, we're dying sinners, and a sinner on their way to be judged after death. So here's the list of questions, Ryle says. How are you gonna be pardoned? I mean, there's no more important question than that. Who's gonna pardon you? How are you gonna come before God? With what will you come before God? How are you gonna escape the wrath to come? What must I do to find forgiveness? Ryle says these are the inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never to rest until they find the answer. That's right. What other question are you asking that could even compare to such an issue? That's why another favorite preacher of mine, James Boyce, when he was referring to this question and to Ryle's comment, he said, unfortunately, those are questions very few people ask. Why? It is because in order to genuinely ask about salvation, we must admit our need of it. Boyce went on to say, we must admit we're sinners in need of a pardon for sin and deliverance from God's wrath, but we do not want to do that. We will confess almost anything but depravity, end quote. Boy, isn't that true. I read an article this last week that absolutely boggled my mind. A study done at the University of Liverpool suggests now that that mannequins are harmful in the stores. I kid you not, I'm not making this up. Mannequins are harmful because doctors have said the size and shape of the mannequins are causing young people to feel shameful about the way they look. So we've got to get rid of the mannequins. And I'm thinking, did no one suggest that the media and movies or magazines do the same thing? Oh no, you can't can't blame actual humans for someone else's behavior. We can 
play what we want in the movies, do what we want on video games, have what we want in magazines. We can parade that stuff on the internet. And if someone says that that's what encouraged them to the trouble in their life, we say, no, 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 no. You, you just turn the channel off. Just turn the thing off. It's not their fault. It's your fault. But if we can blame it on a dummy, absolutely the mannequins are at fault. I mean, are we... Boyce was right. We will blame almost anything else. We will never confess depravity. So true. Well, he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have to understand, he is an expert in Old Testament law. What is he asking this question for? He already knows. He taught what the law required. He interpreted and applied God's law to God's people and its religious practices, as I said. Your daily life in Judaism, the theology of which was written by this kind of guy. What is he asking a question, the answer of which he already knows? Well, he's obviously trying to show off a little bit here, but Jesus sets a trap for him, verse 26. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Oh, I love this because Jesus gives the guy the opportunity he's wanting. He gets to instruct Jesus and the crowds and every prideful, wise in your own eyes kind of a guy loves an opportunity to do that. So Jesus says, well, what does the law say? How does it read to you? Interpret it for me. What is Jesus doing here? Well, listen, he knows something that the lawyer is being sucked into and does not see. Jesus knows that once this expert in Old Testament law quotes from the law, he will have to admit that he already knows the answer to his own question, then therefore, why is he asking the question? And now Jesus can put the implications to him. Well, so are you living that? You ask me a question, the answer to, of which you already know, and so now I've let you give the answer. Now, are you living that? Well, the, the expert in the law actually just takes the bait, verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the question was about moral obligation to have a relationship with God, and now the law, quoted by the man himself, is a call to perfection. It's a call to devotion so complete, so perfect, so daily, so faithful, as to be described as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And by the way, he adds Leviticus 19.18, the second greatest commandment, and by the way, your neighbor as yourself. The guy is just given all of his notes. And just like that, he wants to impress Jesus and the crowds, and he walks right into it. Notice when he quotes the law, he does not interpret it with any kind of excuses yet. There's nothing in the white spaces. There's no wiggle room. There's no loopholes. There's no excuses. How do I obtain eternal life? Well, you already know. Tell me. Well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You want to have an eternal, intimate relationship with the holy God of the universe? You already know how to do it. You must be perfect. The law of God says be perfect. All your mind, all your heart, all your soul. Hmm. Your devotion to God must be the perfect love of God and the perfect love of your neighbor expressed through selfless sacrifice and unfailing mercy upon their faults. That was his answer just by quoting the law. And Jesus in verse 28 says, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. In other words, do this and don't be judged. Do this and you'll be fine in front of God. Do this and you can enter into his presence a justified man. Do this and you're okay. Do this and you will live eternally with God. You'll have that intimate relationship. And by the way, the verb is present tense. Keep on doing it. Daily do it. No, flaw, no, no lapse. No diminished expression of it. Do this every day, always, faithfully, perfectly, and you'll live I must have surprised the expert in the Old Testament to hear Jesus say, you've answered correctly. Well, of course I answered correctly. I'm, I'm an expert in these things, of course. But then Jesus adds, keep on doing it faithfully. 
You say, well, is Jesus implying you could work your way to heaven? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. He is saying that the law of God requires perfection. Now, let's be clear about this. Let's be clear so we never are unclear about what this, this whole interchange is teaching. Jesus is not implying here that a sinner born in sin by nature, which is all of us, that a sinner could actually perfectly obey God's holy law and therefore get to heaven on their own righteousness. What he is saying is if you could do that, you would be justified. But he's not implying that anyone could actually do that because since the fall, no one can. And God knows that. God knows we all go astray from our earliest days because we stray by nature. And so God knows that no sinner will ever be able to perfectly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one. That's what made the Jews say to Paul, well, then are you saying that the law is contrary to the promises of God? No, the law was useful. Paul said in Galatians 3.21, if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would be based on the law. Look, if a man could actually take the law given by God and obey every single thing in it, you'd be like Jesus. You could justify yourself. But it can't. Verse 22 of Galatians Three, listen to this. But the law, or scripture, has imprisoned everyone under sin, literally everything under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's right. That's right. God wants you to see your need. God wants you to know the standard, but the more you look at the standard, the more you see you can't meet it. As this man said the standard right out of his mouth, he began to realize, I can't meet this. I can't meet it. This was a perfect moment for him. Why did God give the righteous law if no one could meet it? Because he wants men to see it is, it is a standard so high that absolute perfection is the only way to exist before God in a relationship intimately for eternity. Absolute perfection. And since none of us measure up, he wants us to know that so that we will look at him in that hinge moment and say, okay, then what, what must I do I, I've said this is what you're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. I haven't done that. This is the hinge moment. I raised four kids. Every single one of them came to a frustrating moment in their early adolescent years. I can't do this. The Bible is too much. It's just relentless. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt. It's always over you. You never get out from underneath it. That's right. And even if you didn't grow up in the church, your conscience, the Bible says, bears down on you because you know there's a judge that's going to, he's going to face you in eternity. Everybody knows that, Romans 1 says. Each time my kids would come to that moment, I would say, you're right. Oh, you're right, you can't. You're at the most crucial point you could be. You're right where this expert in Old Testament law is in his encounter with Jesus. Here's the moment when he could turn to Christ. Here's the moment when he could see the standard of perfect holiness. He could see the bent of his own heart against the standard and he would know in this moment, then Jesus, you gotta have another way. You gotta tell me another way. I stood up to test you, but you've gotta put me to the test. You gotta answer my question. If the law isn't it and I can't do it, how does anyone make it? And so this wise man took his best shot. And now, verse 29, he makes his worst mistake. The wise man takes his best shot, and now he makes his worst mistake, verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. Oh, you just read those words, and you think, that was your moment. That was your moment to soften. Listen, if you are here today and the standards of God, the Bible, the scriptures, the law of God, or even your Christian parents or somebody around you, it's just too much. It's relentless and it has just held you captive. You are right in that moment. And you have an opportunity to do something different than the front end of verse 29. This is his worst mistake. He... He hardens against it. He, he wants to change the discussion. He, he redirects. He, he avoids. He evades. 
wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh man, the penny drops right here. Who's my neighbor? You could literally translate this phrase, desiring to prove himself still righteous. In other words, if I could get the discussion about a list of who the neighbor is, which would then automatically imply there's a list of who isn't a neighbor, then I could demonstrate how I've been faithful to these neighbors on the list to whom I'm morally obligated, and I could leave out the others, and I could still say, see, you you didn't catch me in an imperfection. I'm righteous. The guy knows he's caught. He's quoted the standard. There's no room for a single failure, and so he does what we all do. When we're indicted by God's truth, we try at times to redefine the standard by working through the nuances of application, or we evade or we redirect. He should have just quit, just thrown up his hands and said, well, then who can, who can make it? He should have been like the, the man with his head down at the temple or beating his breast saying, be, be merciful to me, a miserable sinner, instead of like the Pharisee next to him who said, I'm glad I'm not like those people who aren't on my neighbor's list. Perhaps he could have said, what do we do? Please tell me. You must have an answer. You're my only hope. I cannot do it. But he redirects. And here's what he does. He takes the conversation from man's total inability. He takes the conversation from man's total inability to faithfully love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor like that, like you already love yourself. He takes it from that conversation to a discussion of neighbors who are on the list or neighbors who are not on the list. What it means to faithfully love certain people. And notice that the lawyer asks about who fits the neighbor category. In other words, he's saying, what are the limits to the second commandment? Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the first commandment and the fact that you need to answer the question, are you living up to the first commandment? You want to talk about the second commandment? Yeah, yeah. What are the limits on the second commandment? Because I think I still could be pretty good on that. You know, if you just tell me who the neighbor is, I, I, I could show you. I've selflessly loved some of those people, even indiscriminately. That's what what sinners do. If they can categorize certain individuals and scenarios as outside their moral obligation, if they can categorize some of God's standard as outside what they're responsible for, then they can still imagine that they're righteous before God in the command to love. And maybe, just maybe, if the second commandment comes out a good scorecard, then maybe he could sort of slide under the wire on the first commandment. Maybe God grades on a curve. human heart becomes so much more blinded when you go down this road. It's so much richer and more blessed to just be liberated in the gospel and say to Christ, I can't do it. I need you to have done this perfect love for me. I need you to have paid my penalty. Lord, I need you to cover me with a righteousness I can't do. He makes his worst mistake. And so, because he sought to justify himself and he asked the question, who is my neighbor? The Lord gives him a parable that is so wise. So Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? But he gives a parable. And and this just moves very quickly. By the way, the details of a parable, you, you have to remember, a parable is not a story to sort of find Um, these tight, detailed ways and nuances to apply all that's in a parable. A parable has real-life circumstances in it, which we're all familiar with, but a parable in its details is, is is just an analogy to drive home a singular principle in the end. The details of a parable are not the focus. They're important, but they're not ultimately the focus. The parable is driving to a point And so everything in the story is easy to relate to, but they all serve to drive to this single moral principle. So notice Jesus replies to him and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
He's a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That means we know he's not outside of the Jewish camp, either a proselyte or a Jew. He's definitely one who's been in Jerusalem. Samaritans never went into Jerusalem. They would have, been, they would have defiled Jerusalem or themselves. There was all this animosity. This is a Jewish victim, according to the parable. And notice Jesus gets right down to the point. He says, by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So in the story, you have a man that was beaten. I've been on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's cliffs and crags and steep declines and and all kinds of places where floods wash through and there's very little trail on either side of the road. And then you, you have these areas that spread out and it goes behind all these holes and caves and whatever. And everybody hung out there Church history all the way through just tells you over and over again, this was familiar territory. If you went down that road, you better have some protection. And so Jesus opens up with a very familiar scenario. The guy's beaten up. He's left half dead. He's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's a Jew. And his things are stolen. He has desperate need. And the first guy to come by is a priest going down on that road. Let's call him a worship mediator. Say, what do I mean, a worship mediator? Well, he's a priest. So he's coming from his temple services. He handles the sacrifice. So he's a go-between, between God's people and God. He, he represents the people. He takes the sacrifice. He lays it on the altar. He does the priestly service. He's consecrated in the clothing. He's supposed to represent being cleansed and holy because I'm going to represent God's people to him and I'm going to represent him to God's people so that they can become clean. In, in the Jewish services, this guy is a mediator. For what? For true worship. We could say it this, guy, this way. This man is, has just come from mediating God's people in worship ostensibly to devote themselves to the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He mediates the people's worship and devotion to God, which is the very thing the Old Testament expert in the law said about God's people. Come from fulfilling his services. And guess what? He's Jewish. So this is a fellow countryman. And he's coming up to him, and he sees him over there on the side of the road, Jesus says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He didn't even go over to the guy. The, the language indicates that he just passed by on the other side. Jesus is setting up this main point of the parable by saying, look, you have a priest who would say, I devote myself to the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I obey the first commandment the way I'm supposed to. He's self-righteous. Because when it comes down to expressing the love that you have for God toward other people, he discriminates. His devotion to God doesn't manifest itself in sacrificial love toward others. And this is a fellow countryman. Notice Jesus doesn't spend any time on why He's, he's going to bring home the point in a moment. He doesn't spend any time on the specifics of why. But you can assume there's self-preservation involved, there's convenience involved, there's reputation involved, maybe even something as dispensable as time is involved. I just don't have time. Then how can you say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength when, when you will not do for other people what Jesus has done for you? can't say you love God like that. Who's the next guy that comes by? Verse 32, likewise a Levite. <laughs> okay, let's call him the worship leader. <laughs> what was the Levite? Well, they were the tribe responsible for the worship of God's people and the stewardship of it financially and they got paid by the temple service and they ordered the liturgy and they ordered the service and they chose the readings and, and they set up the worship. They were the worship leaders of God's people. Wow, you have a worship mediator in the priestly work. You have a worship leader here. Jesus is laying it on. And notice when he came to the place and saw him, 
he passed by on the other side. The phrase is distinct from the priest. This phrase could possibly indicate that he got close. He went over on that side and looked, maybe even stood over the body. Maybe saw up close and personal the life-threatening condition. And then deliberately backed away, went over to the other side of the road and went on his way. So there you have it. Wow, you have two guys that are from Jerusalem. They see a fellow countryman and they say up on the mountain, up on the temple mount, that they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they have a list. They have a list of who's worthy of their love. And this guy's not on it for some reason, for whatever reason. And then Jesus lays it on with an exclamation point and points out a worship outcast. This is a worship outcast. He's not allowed on the Temple Mount. He's a Samaritan. He is outcast from Jewish worship. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, I'm sure that Old Testament expert in the law just took a deep breath. I'm sure the crowd gasped. A Samaritan? And notice it's contrast. But different than those two guys. He's on a journey. <laughs> he's, not even, he's not even going home that we know of. His home's not close by. He's actually away from his belongings, away from his home, away from his security. He's certainly on the road somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho, so he's close enough to the fringes of Jewish, you know, area. And he comes upon him, and when he saw him, and this just sort of just on top of one another just unfolds. He felt compassion and then he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds. What bandages? Where did he get bandages? He's, he's on a journey. There's no, he must have a first aid kit but he's using it all, maybe tearing up some of his own clothes. He pours oil and wine on them. These are supplies that he probably has only enough for the trip. He put them on his own beast so now he's gonna, he's gonna make the the patient comfortable at his own physical expense and energy. He takes him to an inn and takes care of him. So he spends time, gets him set up, and then on the next day, so he stays with him 24 hours, on the next day he takes out his own money, gives it to the innkeeper and says, you take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. He starts a credit account, Jesus says, and he's gonna pay it on behalf of this guy. He's not even gonna be there to see whether the guy appreciates it. Some 750 years earlier, the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And right in that area where the Samaritans lived, just north of Jerusalem, right in the land of Samaria, settled the Assyrians who intermarried with some surviving Jews after the exile. And those intermarriages produced generations of half-breeds. And so there was this major battle between the Samaritans and the Jews. And when the Jews were building their temple, they asked the Samaritans to help, and the Samaritans refused because of how poorly they'd been treated by the Jews. And so that increased the animosity. And then the Samaritans went and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim opposite the, the Zion. And so now you have different worship, different religions, and animosity that's racial and generational. All of this is flooding the minds of the hearers of this parable. And who's the hero in the story? It's a guy who's hated by the guy on the ground and who hates the guy on the ground if he isn't otherwise a follower of God. Normally a Samaritan would hate him. Somehow, Jesus puts the Samaritan in the place of hero in the, in the parable and more than that, the one who actually loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the point. He's the real worshiper even though he's considered by everyone else a worship outcast. And notice with Jesus' question to drive the point home, verse 41, uh, verse uh, 36, which of the three, rather, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? You say, wait a minute, Jesus changed the angle. He changed the perspective. The guy isn't asking about the men responding to the guy on the ground. He's asking, is that guy on the ground a neighbor? 
Am I obligated to see the guy on the ground as a neighbor so that I'll help him? Jesus turns it around and says, which of the three was a neighbor? It's very wonderful that Jesus switches this around because now the discussion isn't who can I love and who can I exclude from my love. The question is, do you truly love, never mind whom? That's the issue. Do you love like God loves, even your enemies, without barriers? If you do, then the love of God dwells in you. If you don't love like that, I'm not talking perfectly in the Christian life. We don't love perfectly like that. This is a reminder to Christians to think about what we profess in our worship. But it is a stinging, blunt point to unbelievers that if you have some religious pretense or you think you're righteous enough, but you don't love your enemies, you will not lay it down for anyone indiscriminately, then you do not love like God because God loves his enemies. God saved his enemies of which you and I were one. Jesus turns the question away from who should I love turns it to are you genuinely loving everyone without barrier loving God with all your heart soul mind and strength is manifested in a genuine sacrificial love for anyone in need this guy had limits and Jesus says then you can't tell me that To have eternal life, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you've already admitted you aren't doing that and you tried to justify yourself by diverting it to the second commandment and when you said, who's my neighbor, I turned it on you and said, well, what are you worried about who's on your list and who's not? Are you loving like the Samaritan in the parable? No, he wasn't. He, he identifies with the Levite and the priest. That's Jesus' point. You say you're a worship mediator of God's people. You say that you're a worship leader of God's people and yet you have limits. And you cannot tell me you want a relationship that's intimate with God because you don't express the kind of love that God expresses. What's your limit? Even as a Christian, we have limits. We don't, we don't reflect the love of God the way we should. I mean, it's just sad, isn't it? You read this parable and you're just struck. No, I, I love sacrificially, but not mean or evil people. Nope. How about um, people that don't fit my lifestyle or strata? How about ethnically different people? Well, you don't, you don't like somebody else's race? That was the issue here. Jews and Samaritans hated each other ethnically. And yet the one that the self-righteous Jew thinks he's better than is the one in the parable that becomes the hero of a real love like God's love. Toward anyone, didn't matter. He saw somebody hurting. He loved them. Do you have a limit? You won't love less educated people, particularly, particularly taxing people, people who have an opposite per- personality than you. How about people outside your family? Oh, you love sacrificially with your family, but somebody outside your, your blood family? No way. How about spiritually weak and needy people that are going to cost you time and energy and resources? There are even people in the church who come to a worship service and say, oh, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. All the deep, deep love of Jesus. But the lost in our culture can't stand them. How how can you say you have the love of God in you and, and not love lost people? Somebody loved you and gave you the gospel and through it, Christ showed his love for you by granting you faith and repentance. How can you not pass that on to someone else? 1 John 3 says, if you see someone in need and close up your heart of compassion toward them, how does the love of God dwell in you? So this is a reminder to believers that though we don't love perfectly, in Christ and and in his love through the cross, we are to see that there is no list. There's not a list of some neighbors and others who are non-neighbors. There's no list. I'm the neighbor. You're the neighbor. You're the one who comes across a need and and says, you know what? I'm going to speak the truth in love because that's what love does. You need the truth, I'm going to speak it to you in love. Oh, you have 
preferences that are going to cost my preferences, I'm going to try to meet your preferences because that's what Christians do. That's what love does. I'm going to set aside some of my preferences and the way I live. When, when I'm with you, I want to minister to you. I don't want there to be any barrier to the truth or the gospel or growth. I'll tell you this, beloved. We are raising a generation of Christians who love to talk about Reformed theology but lack genuine love. How do we know? They flaunt whatever they want in front of people and yet come to church and say, I'm all about Reformed doctrine. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't flaunt anything in front of people. Love should prevail. Love doesn't do that. Love is careful. Love is concerned. Love lives a holy life. Love sacrificially meets the personal needs of others at your own expense. Love forgives all offenses. This is what love does. This is what Jesus is saying to this upstart. He's saying you're self-righteous. You think you're a true worshiper or what you're not. Because you tried to divert the conversation to who's on your list and who's not. And I'm telling you, there's no list. You're the neighbor. God brings you someone. You just meet their need. You won't be able to meet every need with everything you have, but you ought to be open and sacrificial and willing even to love, for, love and pray for your enemies and those who persecute you and those who do you harm. This is the love of God. And so Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Notice, he said, which one do you think proved to be a neighbor? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Get that? He couldn't even say the name Samaritan. He couldn't even say, well, was the Samaritan in your story, Jesus? Oh, no. This guy couldn't even say the name. Oh, the one in the story, that one. It would have been great if Jesus said, you mean the Samaritan? Say it with me, Samaritan. <laughs> no! The one who showed him mercy. That's right. So go and do likewise. At that point, again, second opportunity, he should have said, I, I have no power to show him mercy like that. I, I am evil to the core. You have just pointed out my self-righteousness. You have pointed out my lack of sacrificial love. You have pointed out that when I say I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I can talk about that, interpret that, teach that in a classroom or from the sacred desk at the temple, and it doesn't mean anything because I have a list. And some people are not on it. I'm not a good neighbor. Second opportunity he had. The account doesn't indicate by Luke that, that he responded at all. So, beloved, listen, this is the most important question in all the world. If, if you know the standard is to love the Lord your God with everything, and that's reflected in your love for others, you know you can't live that. No Christian lived admits that they live that. We, we, don't, we don't brag that we live that. You say, well, how do you get away with it? How do you get a relationship with God and you don't fully live that? Jesus lived it for us. When we believed in Christ, he lived it for us. He died for us. He covers us with his perfect love and he, by his spirit, begins to transform us into a guy like the Samaritan who has no list. He's the neighbor. And so it's... It's not a mere human compassion story. It's divine compassion reflected in God's people as proof that you do know the God of the universe. And if it's not there, just go before the Lord and admit it. I'm pathetic. I've never loved certain pockets of people. I've hated them, hated other races, hated other people not like me, hated people who've harmed me, hated people whom, whom I refuse to forgive because I don't like them. You take that before the Lord and say, Lord, am I, am I a believer? Because you said if I close my heart of compassion toward people, the love of God cannot dwell in me like that. On the other hand, if you know you're in Christ and you've seen that kind of love, but it's just not where it ought to be, then we should go to the Lord and repent. I just don't love like I ought to, Lord. Help me get rid of my list. No barriers, no limits. Bow with me. Lord, we need your grace today to love like this. 
apart from your grace in the gospel, no one will love for any righteous reason. It'll be all for themselves. Our love was all for ourselves before we met you. When you opened our eyes to the cross, we, we finally saw a love that was so astronomical. All we did was hate you. All we did was live sinful lives that made the cross necessary. And all we did was become the part of the sinful humanity that needed a savior and had we been around the foot of the cross we would have cried crucify him and yet you died anyway for your enemies to love us and then we come up with lists of reasons why we're not morally obligated then to to love others the same way please forgive us for those terrible barriers. They're ungodly. They're the old life. Lord, for someone here today who's never met you, they don't know you, they they don't believe in you. It's all about them. It's all about their righteousness, all about their fairly decent life. Humble them. Humble them, Lord. They've, They've heard the account. They saw your gracious way that you answered this expert in theology and yet you you made the point so clear that your requirement is perfection and if we can't be perfect then we need a savior who can be and who is and who was and so cause them to repent and believe call them to yourself humble their heart crush their pride We love you, Lord, but we don't love you enough, so help us to love you all the more like this. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, stand if you would. Just a reminder, tonight, 6 o'clock, is spring concert. So it's just a lot of scripture and uh, reading and singing together and a lot of great music. I think you're going to be blown away. It's going to be a great, encouraging time. Join us at 6 if you can. And... um, Let's see, what do we have going on this week? Oh, next Sunday's Mother's Day. That's wonderful. Be preparing for that. I want to see you at the card section of the store and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then Tuesday morning, I think we're on for uh, men's leadership, Grace and Granite. So God bless you. Have a great week. Colors of foam to the fragrance of spring.